Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. Jokes depend upon delivery. And uh, I read this joke, and I didn't like how it was written, so I rewrote it, hoping the delivery would be better. Y'all ready? Okay, here we go. Where do you keep a well-balanced horse? A stable. (laughs) Yeah, if it's that bad, and I rewrote it, imagine how bad it was before. All right. Uh, And this is my favorite, though. And I had to do the horse jokes today because of the second one. What did the horse say after it tripped? Help, I've fallen, and I can't giddy up. So years ago, I read a book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anybody read that book, Seven Habits? It starts with, an, um, there's a, an activity that you're asked to do, and that activity is to pretend it's your funeral. And on the day of your funeral, you're watching your funeral happen. And as you're watching it happen, all the people that you know and love are going to come up and they're going to talk about you. And you should write down what you want them to say about you at your funeral. And, and uh, he asks you to do that as an act, you know, as an as a exercise to figure out what you really value in life. Well, me, you know, I'm the typical person. I just read the book and I went on long, but there was a guy I was listening to recently. His name's Andy Stanley. And he said, when he read that, he literally decided, I need to do this exercise. So he stopped and he spent, he said he spent several days thinking through what he wanted said at his funeral and who would come and talk and what they would say, who's going to show up Who's going to talk? What are they going to say? And he wrote down those things, and out of that, he formed some goals for his life because, well, forming those goals was sort of a north star by which he lived his life from that moment on. Um, I did something similar to this, but it was years and years ago. I was in a class in Bible college, and I had my favorite teacher. His name was uh, um, uh, Stout, Maurice Stout. Maurice Stout was teaching class, and he asked us to do something. He said, you're going to be a pastor. I want you to envision what your week is going to look like. Write down your week and your expectations and what you're going to do and the times you're going to do it. And while you're at it, write down some things you would like to do. What sort of community do you want to pastor in? You know, what, what do you want out of your life? So I wrote down uh, my work week. Now remember, I wasn't even dating at this moment, and I wrote down... A, a concept that would later in my marriage become what we called yes time. You know what yes time is? That's when the kids go to bed and me and my wife get to hang out alone. You know, yes time. We get to talk. She gets to tell me all about the day and I get to listen. Right? Now, when I was 19 years old in college, I was writing down a concept that from 
about 9.30 at night till 10.30 at night would be yes time. I didn't realize I would marry a night owl, so it would be from 10 to God only knows when. Uh, anyway, uh, as I fall asleep, no, no time to go into that. But anyway, I also wrote some other things down, what I would look my work like, what I thought my work week would look like. And one of the things I did is, you know, as a pastor, I didn't want to work 40 hours a week because you guys work 40 hours a week and I ask you to come to church and then I ask you to volunteer and to serve. So I said, my work week will never be a 40-hour work week. I need at least a 50-hour work week because my 50-hour work week covers my 40 hours and the 10 hours of volunteer time like I ask you to do. So I'm not going to be the guy that asks you to do something I won't do. So my sweet spot in work is about 50, somewhere in the 55 hour a week is my sweet spot of work because I expect you to volunteer too. Right? I don't want to be a hypocrite. One thing I don't want to ever be accused of is anybody saying they outworked me. I will not be a lazy person. That, that's one of the things going to be said at my funeral. <laughs> he, he's going to work. Anyway, um, and if you ever outwork me, you can say you've done something. So I wrote down these life goals. I did more than that, though. I wrote down some other stuff. I wrote down what kind of community I want to live in. I wrote down how many kids I wanted to have. I wrote down I want to be married. Of course, I wasn't dating anyone at the time. Yeah, it's really good to figure out you want to get married when you aren't dating anyone. So anyway, uh, because then you can become the kind of person that the kind of person you want to marry would want to marry. Boy, that was really good. Somebody should write that down somewhere. Anyway, so anyway, I also decided that what kind of vehicle I want to drive. And I have driven a truck my entire life except for that time period where I drove an old four-door Sierra because it was the best thing for my family. <clears throat> anyway, because my wife always gets the best car too. Just, just going to say, my job is to love her and take care of her. Anyway, all that being said, I wrote down all these things, and these were philosophies that I, and I found it a couple of years ago. I was sorting, sorting through some old notes, and I came across, and you know what? The things I wrote down when I was 19, my work week looked almost exactly like what I had envisioned when I was 19, where I live, the kind of house I live in, the kind of vehicle I drive, what, how many kids we have. All of those things were almost exactly the same. Isn't that amazing? That I wrote down what I wanted my life to look like, and then I set out to make my life look like that. Remember last week, I encouraged you to write down the vision, make it plain on tablets so you can run with it. Well, today, I'm reminding you that what you want to do is you want to live your life backwards. You want to start with the end goal in mind and then work backwards. How do I get there? Jack Nicholas says that's how you play the master's course in Georgia. Do y'all know the masters? Anybody ever watch the masters? You know what I'm talking about? Jack Nicholas was like the master of the masters. And he said what you do is you figure out where you want to putt from. And then you figure out where you need to hit your, your shot into the green so you can put the ball where you want to putt from. And then you go back to the tee to figure out where you want to hit your tee shot so you can figure out where, you, where it will land so you can get the approach shot right. And I'm like, man, that's why I never played the Masters. Because when I get up there, I'm just like, I hope this gets somewhere close to some fairway. <laughs> right? It'll go a long way, this way and then that way. All you golfers ever played with me, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so uh, what's the goal of your life? What's the goal you're shooting for? What's your goal of raising kids? Do you want to raise obedient kids? Or maybe, maybe. 
We wrote down the goal of child-rearing for us. Child-rearing for us was that we would raise healthy, well-adjusted, godly kids who would be productive in this world. That was our goal. And you know what? Sometimes when we wanted to discipline them for something, it didn't meet our goal, so we had to change our discipline to meet the goal because they may have done something that was thoughtful and directed towards acting like a mature person but was wrong, and I couldn't discipline them for something that was wrong that they did trying to act like an adult. And then there were other times I had to discipline them for not acting like an adult and rather than acting like every other stupid kid in the world. You guys know what I'm talking about? Are y'all even, are y'all awake? But if you have a goal for child rearing, that helps you make your decisions about what you will reward and what you will punish. Okay. How about, what's the message? Do you want, what's your goal for money? Do you want to be out of debt? Do you want to retire someday? Or how about this one? How about you'd just like to have some peace regarding money? Wouldn't that be great? And some of you, you're like, hey, I'm talking about money. You bet, because you're always talking about money. You're always complaining about it. And I'm sending you to Financial Peace University, and I'm saying, sign up now for FPU. And you're saying, he's just trying to control me. Okay, let me control you. You're not smart enough to control yourself. Go get some help. You'll find out later. I, uh, yeah, anyway, my whole point in this is, what, what's your goal for money? If you don't have a goal for money, then you're going to act like everybody else regarding money and be in debt and pay credit cards, which is dumb. Anyway, what's the goal of your life? What's the goal of your marriage? What's the goal that you want, you know, do you want to be able to walk when you're 80 or do you want to, you know, ride one of those scooters that's really cool? I don't care. What do you want? All right? Craig Rochelle I was listening to a sermon the other day by him, and he said, we don't need more willpower. What we need is some why power. All of us are trying to willpower our way through life, but what we need is some why power, because if you get your why right, you will do the will right. So let's get our whys right. Let's figure out what we want out of our life. Do the seven habits of highly effective things. Sit down, take, take 20 minutes this week, and think about what you want your life to look like in 20 years or at the end of your life, and then write some things down and, and make some mid-course changes if you need to. So this message series is, inspi is inspired by the prophet Daniel. He was carried from his homeland in Israel by the Babylonians when he was about 12, 13, 14 years of age. He was separated from his family and his homeland and everything he ever knew, and they even changed his identity. They took away his name and gave him another name. They took it from Daniel, which says, uh, God is powerful, to um, Belshazzar. Belsha uh, no, I don't know what the name of it was. I got it written down in my other notes, but not in these. Anyway, the whole point of it was they were changing his name to give him Baal as worship. And, uh, and, and that's just not right. They probably changed his sexuality, too. They probably made a eunuch out of him. Now, they did all of these things to him, but yet when Daniel is 80 years of age, 
after not having a temple to worship in for over 70 years, when he's 80 years of age, it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So when he's 80 years old, he's still bowing his knee to a temple that hasn't existed in 70 years because he's honoring God. And what I want out of us is to raise up a generation from this church that when when you're still old and gray, regardless of what it costs you, the persecution, the issues you go through, you're still bowing your knee and you're still worshiping God and you're passing on honor for generations to come because you still know Daniel's name to this day because Daniel bowed his knee. All right. So, um, in this sermon series, we're focusing on the end goal of our lives to finish strong and if we figure out what the finish line is, we can run towards it rather than running this way. Okay? So, would you stand with me in honor of God's Word? And um, I'm, we're going to do James, James 1.4 is our verse today. We're going to John, trust me. We'll be in 1 John in just a minute. But I wanted us to say this out loud together. There are so many great verses in the Bible about finishing strong. I just wanted us to read this one together. And I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me. Can you say it out loud with me? Good, do it. If somebody near you doesn't do it, give them a big elbow as we're reading. All right, you ready? Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this will help you internalize it because you're hearing it, speaking it, seeing it all at the same time. You ready? One more time. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Father, I pray that today we would focus on the finish so that we could be strong enough to live the right way now. And that we would enter the finish line. And we would finish strong. We wouldn't be drug across the finish line. We'd finish strong. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. Amen. All right, before you're seated, why don't you turn to somebody and tell them, you're looking great today. Hey, if you're online, you're looking great today. All right, so we're going to talk today about a guy named John. I want to talk to you about who this John dude is. So John is one of the meek, wimpy people who follow Jesus. By the, by the way, Jesus picked, handpicked 12 disciples. Uh, one of those that he picked became what is probably his best friend. His best friend is known as John. And John was, um, well, Jesus had a nickname for John. Uh, John, of course, loved Jesus, and Jesus loved John, and they like reclined on each other's breast and all that kind of stuff. That's because when you ate in those days, you ate laying down, and John would be like, hey, what's going on, Jesus? You know, because you can't only hold your head this long and eat so much. You'd be like, okay, Jesus, how you doing? <laughs> that may seem weird to me and you, but that's how they ate, so it's, it's what it is. So Jesus had this friend named John, and he had a nickname for John. Do you know he had a nickname for John? Jesus gave nicknames. Some of you think Jesus was just like this floating on clouds all the time. And he was sort of like this Mr. Rogers on steroids. Come on, children. 
That's not, that's not who Jesus was. You know how I know that? Because Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, we'll get to this in a second. Do you know what James and John, two of his three closest friends, you know what he named them? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Now, hold on. John, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 17. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name, yeah, which means sons of thunder. Boanerges. Boanerges. You should try to read some of the words I have to read up here, okay? I should just say, Boanerges, and you'd be like, oh, he's French. Didn't know it. <laughs> you didn't know Jesus spoke French. Anyway. Uh, no, but, but I want you to notice this. His name for his closest disciples were sons of thunder. Now, these guys, then obviously, they're not really weak and wimpy kind of people. Let me give you an example of how they weren't weak and wimpy. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, because somebody had bad-mouthed Jesus. They didn't, they didn't treat Jesus right. When James and John saw this, they said, Lord, we're going to call down fire from heaven on them? These dudes were not your wimpy little dudes. I got other words. I'll just skip those. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't weak. They, uh, when, when somebody messed with Jesus, they wanted to fight. This, this fighting words. By the way, they had another disciple in their closest group. His name was Peter, right? Y'all know a little bit about Peter? Push come to sub, I cut your ear off, dude, you know? Yeah, Jesus' closest three, they were a little crazy. They were, by the way, those were the guys that they didn't graduate from school. They got, to, uh, they got to their bar mitzvah about age 12. And when you were supposed to go to school, the next level, and, you know, the smart kids all got picked up by a rabbi, and it was all cool, and you got taught, and they trained you till 30, so Jesus was smart. But anyway, uh, all of, too much background there. Uh, here, here, these guys, where's John and James at? Where Peter all at? They're fishing. Why? They, they got kicked out of school at 12. I mean, they didn't even get their GED. You're like, no, get out of here. Go to work. It's about time you learn some HVAC so you can fix that thing. Sorry. <laughs> we got one broken this morning. I'm yelling at it. Anyway, where was I? Sons of Thunder, ready to fight, ready to go. Yeah? As an old man, John's still tough. Don't let anybody kid you. The lover is still a tough dude. He's calling people antichrist, liars, and children of the devil. Sounds to me like that's a pretty tough dude. He's not backing down. He's an old guy. He said, I walked this road along. John was so tough, according to church tradition, they boiled him in hot oil. And he didn't die. He survived. He's walking around going, no, that skin, I don't need that no more. I don't know. But I'm telling you, this dude was tough. But yet we know something about this tough guy. He was one of the inner circle, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were the only ones who were at the transfiguration with Jesus. The only ones. That means when Jesus was transfigured and they saw his glory, only Peter, James, and John were there. The other nine disciples were not. At Jairus' daughter, at Gethsemane, the only people he let go. You know, I'm going to pray a little more. Peter, James, and John, come with me. Everybody else, you stay back there. Jesus trusted these guys. They were his closest companions. And if you think Jesus was a wimp, just look at who he hung out with. 
So James was martyred by Herod in AD 44, so he was dead. Uh, somewhere between uh, 10 to 14 years after Jesus' death, Her uh, James was martyred. Peter was martyred in AD 64 by Nero. And now John is recounting his message somewhere between 85 to 90 AD. He writes the book of John, the Gospel of John, and he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are three letters. Uh, one of them is meant to be a circular letter. The other two letters are written to individuals in a church. He's one of the last, well, actually he is the last apostle. Everybody else is dead. He survived everybody else, all the other 11 apostles, dead. They've all died for Christ. They've all died. And John's the only one left. I was talking to a guy a couple of, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, and we were sitting around talking, and he was an old guy, and he's saying, yeah, I, I don't have anybody from my friend group left. Everybody I went to school with, they're all dead. Everybody that I was married to, they're dead. My kids are dead. Everybody's dead. I'm left. Why doesn't God just take me home? And I imagine there's some of that going on in John. He's the only one left, and he's like, he's outlived everybody because everybody else has been killed, and they tried to boil him, and they didn't even succeed. I mean, Anyway, his, his nickname was French Fry then. <laughs> Sorry. So he calls upon eyewitnesses to testimony the life and works of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1. So uh, this is 1 John. By the way, the books of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, all three of those letters were written by the same person. Obviously, they were written by the same person. They have the exact same themes. They have the same writing style. Um, I talk to you guys about reading Greek occasionally because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And uh, when, when I talk to you about having to slow down to read it and understand it, just so you know, the other day I timed it. I wanted to find out how long it took me to read eight verses. It took me nine minutes to read eight verses. Nine minutes to read eight verses. And so, so obviously I'm not very good at this Greek thing, so I'm not gra bragging about it. I'm just simply saying it's a work, and if it's worth working at, it's worth doing, even if it costs you time and energy. All right, so yeah, I can read English. I can read eight verses in about 30 seconds, just so you know, and comprehend it fully. All right, all that say, one of the reasons I know John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are all written by the same person is their Greek style is so alike. Um, we're, we got a grandbaby. She's little. She's a little baby, you know, and she brings us over a book like this and me and Robin will open up the book and we'll read about two sentences and then she'll run off. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But all of those baby books, they all read pretty much the same way. See John run. See John run fast. John run faster than Peter. <laughs> That's a biblical joke if you missed it. Anyway, all of that to say, the, the book of John is written noun, verb, predicate. It's very simple. Uh, Revelation, no, no, no. But anyway, uh, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, whoever wrote those, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, whoever wrote Hebrews, man, they're Greek, I, I have no idea. I find the verb four sentences later. Uh, in John, I can sit down and read it. And the reason I'm saying that is John, even though he was an old man and he was very tough, he was a lover, but he also wanted to be simple in his approach. He wanted you to understand. So let's look at what he said. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. I'm sorry. John's an old guy telling you, hey guys, this is the real deal. 
This isn't some story we made up. We have seen this. We heard it. We've touched it. We've been there. This is real. By the way, 1 John starts to say, how does John chapter 1 verse 1 start? In the beginning, and he starts here, that which is from the beginning. So it's like John, he like says the same things because old people repeat themselves. <laughs> and old people I've heard repeat themselves. And I've heard that old people repeat themselves. <laughs> I don't know, I've heard, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, we proclaim this to you concerning the word of the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and that appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John's not telling you made-up stories. He saw Jesus dead, buried, resurrected. He saw him heal people. He's lived a life now for Jesus, and he's seen miracles. He's not playing games. He's not playing games. This is real, and I want you to have fellowship with us, and I'm going to do everything in my power to drag you with me because John was a lover. John chapter 13, verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, he designated as the disciple Jesus loved because Jesus and him, they had a special friendship. John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there, this is Jesus hanging on the cross, and he looks down. By the way, John, by the way, everybody ran away from Jesus except John. The one person who was with Jesus the entire time his, his, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was arrested, when he was on trial, when he was at the cross, the one guy who never left was the lover. And he's standing there and Jesus saw his mother and he looked down at the disciple that he loved and he said, woman, that's your son. In other words, take care of my mom. See, a lot of you think that if you're a lover, you have to be a wimp. Because listen to me, I'm a lover. I love deeply and I love passionately and I love you a whole lot more than you will ever know. But I'm also a son of thunder. And if you start screwing up, I'm going to be up in your face because I love you. I'm not going to let people I love mess up their lives and let them just skate by with it. You can be a lover and a fighter at the same time. As a matter of fact, I made some reference to, you know, you want a lover to be like Mr. Rogers. And the guy reminded me that Mr. Rogers was a sniper in Vietnam. And if you want, listen to me, if you want a real lover, get a lover that's willing to fight for you. And if I see you going astray, I'm going to fight for you. And if I hear you talking stupid, I'm going to fight for you. And anybody that really loves you will. I don't want to see you destroyed. So John's the same way. He, John's style is the same, all four letters. He does these comparisons. There's light and there's darkness. I don't want you in darkness, I want you in light. There's life and there's death. I don't want you to die. I want you to have life. There's truth and there's lies. And the world's feeding you full of lies. And I'm telling you, believe the truth. Yeah. 
regardless. Yes. <laughs> Is it lover and a fighter? Maybe I'm so passionate about this message because probably of one of the people I identify with most is a guy like John. Maybe not so much early in my life, but later on. I've been getting a little older. And I really identify with him because uh, I love passionately, but I fight hard. And it's okay to do both. As a matter of fact, I think real men do that. I'm always a little worried about a guy that won't fight for those he loves. A new command, John 13, 34. New command I give you. Love one another. So John boils it down through Jesus. Jesus and John, they boiled it down. As I have loved you, you must love one another. John chapter 2, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother and sister is still in the darkness. You see the light darkness stuff? And anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. He says this, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, church fathers say John was an elder when he wrote this. He'd been an elder at Ephesus for years and years and years. And as the elder, he was the guy who was basically in charge of the church at Ephesus that Paul had founded years and years ago. And, and as the elder, he was basically the guy everybody listened to. He was the old guy. As a matter of fact, imagine he called everybody children because 14 times in 1 John alone, he calls people children. <laughs> so he's just saying, kids, Y'all all kids, listen to me. <laughs> it reminds me of Robert Owen. Now, uh, me and my wife, we had, a, uh, we had a mentor. Before he passed away, his name was Robert Owen. He was her pastor for years, and she was raised in his church, called into ministry and sent out from his church. And uh, what happened is we honored him because, does anybody remember Robert Owen? Yeah, every single Thanksgiving, I would have him come the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and he would show up. He was about this tall, and he was a Welsh guy that spent time in the mines before he got saved, and he'd bring his accordion with him, and he'd sing a version of An Oh, Danny Boy rewritten to Christianity, and it'd be, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. That's my best Welsh accent. Anyway, do an honor to him. Anyway, he would show up here, and uh, he was a tough Coot, man, he was tough. He didn't mess with Pastor Owen. Pastor Owen was old and he was small. But one day we were at lunch and he said, Kevin, Kevin? He would call Robin, Kevin. When things are going well, don't get too excited. When things are going bad, don't get too down. They're going to change. Man, I listened to that. I was like, because what happened is we had just had an uptime and I was all excited. And then we had one of those free falls and it was bad. And he was telling me, calm down, be stable and lead. Man, what a good line. Yeah, one day he showed up and he preached a sermon. I got really mad at him. I got mad at him. He preached the sermon. You parents are sending your children to hell by having them involved in sports on Sundays. I'm like, what? See, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but my kids, I had two of them play college sports on scholarship. So they're both in 
you know, my, my kids are all athletic and talented. And that very Sunday, my son was down the hallway wearing his soccer clothes because after first service, he was going to go to a soccer game for second service then meet us back up for lunch with Robert Owen. And he's like ripping on us for parents letting their kids play sports on Sundays. Looking back on it though, I think he was more right than I gave him credit for. Because you know how many kids I've seen walk away from faith because their parents are more concerned about them being a super athlete? And then, then, you know, by the time they're 20 years old and they can't, body can't support college athletics or 22 years of old, maybe the outside you make it to 30 or maybe you're one of the greatest professionals ever and you make it 40. At some point, you're going to take those cleats off. You're going to take those basketball shoes off. And, and you know what? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, at that moment, you wasted 40 years of your life for nothing. My kids took theirs off competitively in their 20s. I sure am glad that we drug them to first service before they went to play soccer in <laughs> second. You know, we had to find a way to make it work. And maybe, maybe Pastor Owen was right, and I got mad at him, and maybe he was saying something we all should be listening to. Because old guys have a tendency to tell you what you need to hear, whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> All right. So what was John's message, speaking of that? I got, I got like three minutes. Y'all ready? What was John's message? I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to point out his message. Very simple. We start in chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, there he goes again. All oh, you young whippersnappers. This is the last hour. What is he saying? He's saying that the time is close for Jesus' return. It's funny to me that in 85, 90 AD, he's writing saying the time is close for Jesus' return. And here it is, 2023. Don't you think it's a little closer now even than it was then? And if he's encouraging us to be ready 2,000 years ago, maybe we ought to listen today. Dear children, this is the last hour as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Everybody's all worried about the Antichrist. I don't think you need to. John says not to. He said, even now, many Antichrists have come. He's not saying you need to worry about the Antichrist. What you need to worry about are the Antichrists. <laughs> and this is how we know it's the last hour. And how do we know? Because you know what the Antichrists are, people? They're, he's going to define it. But they're people who claim to be Christians, who live within the church, that are actually leading you away from truth. And there are a whole bunch of them right now. Don't get me started on that. All right. So then he says, first thing he says is it's the end time. The second thing he says is uh, choose your friends wisely. Choose your friends wisely. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Right? And then he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, be careful about those people who act like your friend to your face and then behind your back will stab you in the back. Because remember, John was the one that never turned his back on Jesus, ever. He's saying, be careful. Choose your friends wisely. You know why? Because if you show me your five closest friends, I will project what your life will look like in three years. They end up smoking pot, guess what? Three years you're going to be smoking pot. It's true. What are they into? 
They into shoes. Bob Stetz showed up. Y'all know Bob? Bob Stetz was our, he was our worship pastor here. He and I were good friends. He showed up at church one day and he had some of the pimp daddiest shoes I ever seen in my life on his feet. And I'm looking at him standing there on the platform. And saying, I said to Robin, those are some good shoes. And I want you to know within two months, I had a pair of shoes that looked just like those. <laughs> Why? Because what you hang out with and what you're influenced eventually will lead to your actions and behaviors. All right, so what else does he say? But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie, no lie comes from the truth. It's true to everybody all the time, everywhere. Who's the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that when you have heard, uh, what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and the Son and the Father. And there's this whole chapter in the Gospel of John about remaining in Jesus. And this is what he promised us eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. There you are back to friends saying, don't pay attention to them. And then the third thing is, he tells us, is God's Spirit will speak the truth to you. He's going to guide you into truth. Trust the Spirit of God to guide you into truth. He said in 1 John chapter 4 verse 13, this is a different passage, he said, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us, he has given us of his Spirit. So he's saying, trust the Spirit of God that is within you. And that anything, listen, anything the Spirit speaks will align with truth. And God's truth is truth. Half-truths are Satan's truths. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now already in the world. So what he's saying is, there's a spirit of Antichrist that is anti against Christ. So it's using Christ, but it's Antichrist. So it's partly true, partly a lie. And what he's telling us is to be careful of the half-truths you're hearing. Because truth is truth is truth is truth, rather written in 80 A.D. or 5,400 A.D. And I, so you got to be careful of half-truths. I had a guy come to me one time, you know, speaking of the Spirit speaks to you. He said, the Spirit spoke to me. Actually, let's back up and do this story. I had a girl write a note to me when I was in college. And she said, God spoke to me. We're going to get married. <laughs> he didn't tell me. <laughs> no, it wasn't Robin. I wouldn't marry a crazy girl that told me God was going to tell me to marry her. <laughs> you don't need God to tell you that. You need to, anyway, <clears throat> that was manipulation coming from her. Be careful of people who use God's name in vain saying stuff like that. I had a guy come to me one time, and he told me, God told me, God told me <clears throat> that I'm supposed to divorce my wife and marry my girlfriend. That's what he told me. You know what I told him? 
I pulled my big black Bible out. I laid it in front of him. I said, give me chapter and verse, buddy. Because here's the deal. Listen to me real quick. Listen to me. God's truth is truth. And God's not going to say one thing here and another thing to you. You are going to line up here, and this is going to line up to you. And if you want to know what truth is, God tells us what truth is, and it will align with his word because his word is truth. All right, where am I at? Oh, last of all, this is, how he's, this is the last message from him. He said, and now, dear children, this is back to 1 John, I believe I'm chapter, I don't know where I am, verse 28, wherever that is. 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed. Wouldn't that be good? To live your life confident and unashamed before him at his coming. You know that he is righteous. And you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. When you live according to God's way, you don't have to be afraid of his first coming, his second coming. You don't have to be afraid of what people say about you. You don't have to be afraid of what it costs you. Because John was pushing total commitment to Jesus. Third John chapter 1, verse 11. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. So the total commitment, he's saying you go all in and you do what's right no matter what it costs you. And that's called sacrifice. So one day a chicken and a pig had a conversation. They said, we love our farmer. We love our farmer desperately. We want to give him a blessing. So the pig says, hey, uh, I got a great idea. Let's knit him a sweater. And the chicken said, no, even better. Let's give him a, a, a bacon and egg breakfast. <laughs> and the pig said to the chicken, for you, that might be a little, a little bit of inconvenience. But for me, that's total sacrifice. <laughs> and I want you to live bacon kind of life. All in for Jesus. All right, last thing John says, what his greatest source of joy is. His greatest source of joy, chapter 2, verse 1, Second uh, John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I hate those first, second, third Johns. They get me goofed up, sorry. The elder, here he is, the old guy again, says to the lady chosen by God and her children, by the way, who is the pastor of the church, the lady was the pastor of the church, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all who love the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. And then he says, it has given, us, given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. His greatest joy was to watch his kids live in truth. One more time, Third John. That was Second John. Third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So recently, I've done a couple of funerals. A couple of funerals of men that I respect. Men a little older. And um, good men. And um, they both had their family gathered around them before their death and um, I've, I've been through this before numerous times. And, you know, I, at the funeral or at, at the point of sickness where they're closing in on death, I've never heard anybody say, 
hey, bring my brand new sports car in. I've never heard anybody say, uh, bring in my bank account. I want to look at how much money I got. I've never heard anybody say, bring in this, that, or the, uh, my golf clubs, or whatever it is that you value. You know what everybody wants? They want the people they have loved and invested in to come gather around them in those moments. When they finish strong, they figure out what matters. What matters is the people you love and you invest in. That's what matters. I've seen this recently a couple of times, and it, uh, it really spoke to me. And one more thing, everybody I've ever met on their deathbed, and I've met a few. Everybody wants to go to heaven. <laughs> Nobody's saying, can't wait to get to hell. That burning thing sounds good. Me and John. <laughs> Nobody says that. Why? Because everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants life after death. And everybody wants to leave life in their death. And my problem, why I get John mad, and why I want to fight, is because some of you think money is the goal of your lives. Some of you think getting one more buzz sexually is the goal of your life. Some of you think that these other things are the goal of your life, being right. Nobody can tell me what to do. Oh, yeah, God will. And I, I'm upset because I don't want you to waste your life and to stand before a righteous judge and have regrets. Like John the old man, I'm saying, I want my kids. I want my kids to walk in truth. I want you to walk in freedom. I want you to walk in hope. I want you to live in love. I want you to be somebody that you're proud of and the people you leave behind are proud of you. And it's only going to happen if you quit focusing on your stuff and you go back to focusing on living a life of truth before God. So I'd like everybody to bow your heads with me. I'm going to do this slightly different today because there are a lot of people in this room, you've got a minor course correction you need to make. There's some of you who've got a major course correction you need to make, but you need to get back on track. You need to get back to truth. You need to get back to light and you need to get back to living for things that are really worthwhile. And you're being led off of that. And I want to I want to encourage you right now to repent and to get back to the truth that God has for you. And if that's you today, we're going to pray a prayer together. Everybody's going to pray it out loud together. And whether you need a big course correction or a little course correction, I want you to pray it with me. And we're going to course correct now by returning to truth and love and life in Jesus. Everybody together. Dear Jesus, I return to you and to your ways so I can live for you and not be ashamed when you return. I give you my life. I turn back to you. I reject the lies and the half lies 
and the quarter lies. And I embrace your truth. Help me today. Amen. Amen. Now, if that's the first time you prayed a prayer like that, and you repented today, and that was your time to turn to Jesus, Pastor Jesse, standing back there in the back, wave at everybody real high, Pastor Jesse. Really high, stick your hand up high. If that's your first time to pray, and you want somebody to just make that confession to, go back and see him before we leave today. The rest of us, we're going to sing a song together. All of us, we're going to sing a song together. It was written by a guy who was 16 years of age. His name was William, William Featherson. He was 16 years old, and he wrote the, uh, the, the poem that became this hymn. And uh, he had to be invested in by some great people for the hymn we're about to sing because he's singing about the end and about what he wants it to look like when he's at the end of his life, at the end of his world, of his existence. What he didn't realize is at 16 years of age, when he wrote this, this poem that became this hymn, he would be dead a decade later. I would say this guy didn't waste his life because we're still honoring his stance today as we sing this song. And what I want to encourage you is, as we sing this song, to think about living for the end rather than just living for today. Could you stand with me and let's sing it together?